Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today is a bonus episode. I woke up on the podcasting side of the bed this morning and decided to do one outside of the regular schedule. Now, if you're not aware, if I haven't brought it up before in the podcast, I seek to do one episode on Monday and one on Friday. The way I'm leaning right now is to do the one on Monday on an economic or social, maybe a philosophical issue, and then reserve Fridays for more theological articles. I have some on faith, some on reason, um, one on Mary. I have a whole bunch of religious ones, and I think that if I counted up those and compared it to all the others, it's roughly equal, so that would make a good Monday-Friday split. However, today is Wednesday, and I figured I'd throw a bonus episode right in between. Um, One more reminder, if you are hearing this, I do invite you to share. Although we have a fair bit of episodes loaded up now, Uh, This podcast is not old at all, so we're always looking for a bigger listenership. I'll continue doing this if nobody listens, but um, I'd be very happy if you guys uh, enjoyed it. Um, Please let me know, and please share it with a friend. Or as I say at the end of every episode, if you have friends and you like sharing, share it with your friends. And if you didn't like this episode, share it with your enemies. Um, So yeah, this is my pleading with you to get the the podcast out there. Um, Let's see. So I wanted to cover a couple mailbag questions, and we'll cover them a little bit more in depth than we normally do. Um, if you have a question for the mailbag, let me know. Send it in to thegordiannot101 at gmail.com. Um, we have no filter whatsoever, and we will answer any and all questions. We're happy to do so. First question Oh, basically it regards weight loss. Somebody wants to lose weight. They've tried a bunch of things. They've hit some plateaus, struggled with that kind of stuff. Um, They want to know if we have any tips for losing weight. And I really like this question because it's very much in the spirit of the podcast. We name it the Gordian Knot, or rather cutting the Gordian Knot. And this is about trying to give clear answers to questions which kind of seem tangled or thorny or confusing. We want to simplify things which are complex and come up with creative solutions for them. So here's my my best way to lay this out. Uh, let me give you an example of somebody. Have you heard of Hofthor Bjorgensen? He and Eddie Hall are currently the, I think, two world's strongest men, uh, depending on the day or the record that you're looking at. Hofthor eats around 10,000 calories a day. And he does so just to maintain his weight. Um, His diet is so wild that he can't eat much fiber because it slows the passage of things. Um, Eddie Hall, uh, who eats a similar amount of calories, um, not to be graphic, points out that to eat that many calories requires the, uh, the assistance of disposable wipes. So these people have an absolutely vast amount of very high calorie foods flowing through their, their bodies at, at any given moment. Um, are they heavy? Well, at this moment, not too heavy. They've dropped a bunch of, of fat to prepare for a boxing match. Um, but in general, they're not getting fatter. They're maintaining their overall body composition. And uh, even while they're doing their boxing training and they have six-pack abs and they look pretty cut, um, they, uh, they're still eating, I think, 8,000 8, 8 or 9,000 calories. So wouldn't you rather be closer to that and less to the I'm going to starve myself for every single meal phase? How did they do it? How are they in the position that they can eat 10,000 calories a day and not be gaining weight? I think that's really the answer to the riddle. 
Um, let me put another data point out there. A marathon runner. Your average marathon runner needs four to 5,000 calories a day. I, I mean, depending on your size. I think it'd certainly be closer to, to 5,000 calories a day. So here's a different model. So the marathon runner, when you run a marathon, that burns, well, what is it, 3,500 calories in a run or something absolutely amazing like that. Well, I don't think we want to be there because most people don't have, what, three or four hours or whatever to to run a marathon. Maybe it takes a long time. I have no idea. I've just run a half marathon. Um, So that's another model. You can eat a lot but be burning it off actively. Or you can be the strongman model and eat even more, double, and be burning it off passively. They do some cardio. They might do like a 20, 30-minute jog. Uh, They might walk around a little bit. Uh, Hofthor, his exercise program is only a few days a week, and it consists of very, very heavy low-rep exercises. We're talking uh, two sets of three deadlifts would be pretty much the core of one day. That's not much exercise, guys. He's not burning that off through exercise. So in the case of the marathon runner, all of the things which they do are about making their body more and more efficient. So when you run, your body learns how to use less fuel. But when you're a strong man, you're kind of doing the opposite. You're becoming less and less efficient. And if you want to lose weight, you don't want to be efficient with your food. You want to burn it with reckless abandon. So I suggest the Hofthor model. Um, and it all begins with packing a lot of muscle onto your frame. So step one is what I would call metabolism rehabilitation. A lot of people who diet and a lot of people who exercise have been basically pounding down their metabolism and destroying it for years on end. And it's going to need some help. So whenever you do that, that long distance, moderate cardio, you're teaching your metabolism to slow down, to use calories more efficiently. And then, of course, when you're doing long-term dieting, where you're restricting your calories, well, again, you're teaching your body to be more efficient with the calories. There are a lot of people who, who only eat a little less than a thousand calories a day because of all of their, their dieting and cardio. And, um, Yeah, with that as a baseline, you're going to struggle to get proper nutrition. You're going to struggle to actually lose weight. Even if you ate nothing, that's about a third to a quarter of a pound every day in weight loss if you ate nothing, if 1,000 calories is your baseline, given that one pound of human fat contains, I think, 3,800 calories. So, all right, rehabilitation. Step one, um, you just need to start powerlifting. And I know you're thinking, I I don't want to be, you know, maybe you're a woman, 27% of the listeners, according to the analytics on this podcast, um, are women. Um, You don't want to pack on and be bulky. Uh, First, people way overestimate the effectiveness of working out. It's really hard to look visibly bulky from exercise. That's going to take a long, long, long time. Also, if you're focusing on full range of motion, compound exercises, you're not going to look bulky. Uh, that's going to lengthen your muscles. That's going to increase the overall diameter. That's going to give you uh, better definition, sculpt your body, do all those good things. going to protect you from injury. 
Um, so long as you're using good form and progressive overload, uh, you can do so safely. And it's going to pay huge dividends uh, later in life when you go into your 70s and 80s with a much uh, more muscular frame. You're going to be protected from falls. You're going to have better mobility. The list goes on and on. So step one, start powerlifting. Um, and supplement that with some really high-intensity exercise. For instance, for somebody who runs, I believe it's seven, uh, 20 or yeah, 20 second sprints, hill sprints, they burn as many calories as somebody who runs for, I believe it's 30 minutes. It might be 45 minutes. But in any ways, you get the basic uh, ratio here. So if you're only running 20 seconds, um, seven times, 140 seconds, so that's a little over two minutes of exercise by doing hill sprints, you can burn more calories than if you were running for 30-something minutes. But you don't do it while you're exercising. Instead, that type of super high um, intensity boosts your metabolism for the next like hour or two hours or something and boosts your baseline calorie burning, even while you're doing nothing. So I would suggest sprinkling those types of activities throughout your day where maybe once or twice a day you do just a couple hill sprints or you do a bunch of burpees or you do a set of uh, jump squats and some push-ups. Anything to get your body um, going at 100%, even if it's for a very short period of time, because then you're going to coast for hours at that very high metabolic level and you're going to teach your metabolism that it needs to be, um, it needs to be ready at any given moment to... Um, to blast off some serious energy. All right, so that's all step one. Um, once you've built a fair amount of muscle um, and once you've, you've done some of those explosive exercises, you're going to see that your overall body composition is changing. And that's really what you're looking for. I mean, I know two people, one who's 170 pounds and about five foot eight, and he has a big fat belly. He's kind of skinny fat. And another guy who's straight muscle, super ripped, defined, great lifts, runs fast, does all those things. Also, same height, 170 pounds. Um, unless you're an astronaut and and you have to, you know, choose how many pounds you'll be bringing to the moon or something and each one is thousands of dollars, I don't think you actually care about weight. I think what you care about is how you feel, your health, and your looks, and sure, all those are important, and uh, all of those will, will be improved with better uh, muscle mass, lean muscle mass. Let's see. Oh, one more thing to add about, um, about exercising. If you do three days a week, like a full body uh, powerlifting couple sets, uh, three days a week, it will only take you maybe 20, 30 minutes a day to bust that out, um, or each one of those three days then you can expect to add anywhere from a quarter to a half pound of muscle to your frame every week. And that takes calories. So you burn it at the gym, you burn it with that metabolic coasting afterwards, but also it requires a lot of calories to synthesize that protein and protein itself um, you know, has caloric content and you have to get that from your diet. So it's, it's pulling that out from uh, where it would have been going to just making you fat. Um, trying to remember how many calories are in a pound of muscle, but I think that works out to somewhere around 300 and something calories a day extra you will need just to account for the calories contained in your additional muscle that you're putting on. I'd have to check that. But anyways, that's just another thing to consider. 
All right, well, we went long on the weight loss thing. Um, I guess the last one will be you got to play around with the whole calorie restriction thing, and that is step two. Remember, step one is all about getting your metabolism up. Eating a bunch of food, working out a bunch, doing explosive exercises, getting your baseline caloric burn way up. That is step one. Do that as long as you need. Step two, short periods of calorie restriction while trying to maintain your muscle mass. Um, again, this is what bodybuilders do. You look at those guys, they're, they're huge and they look like they're made of beef jerky. I mean, clearly they have dieting figured out. Um, I don't suggest looking like that. It's kind of gross and there's way too much spray tan. But I think we can admit that they seem to have a very strong process of um, removing, removing fat from their frame while re retaining um, muscle mass. And they do so by shorter cutting phases where they drop down their carbohydrates, they drop down their fats, they focus on high-protein foods, and they continue their overall efforts and maybe add in a smidge of cardio. And that'll do it. That'll do it. You might want to do your calorie um, reductions through intermittent fasting. A lot of people find that, just behaviorally speaking, to be a very easy way to go about as your hunger single signals slowly change to match whatever you set up as your diet. Um, and others find that just snacking throughout the day, very small, healthy snacks um, that have a small um, cumulative amount of calories can also be effective. And uh, I, I, I can't render an opinion on that. I understand the um, perspectives of both. And I think you should find out what works for you and switch it up so that your body doesn't exactly get used to one strategy or another. All right, moving on to the next question. Da, 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 da. Well, this one's a wee bit more serious. Um, this one's about... Um, oh, you know what? I'm going to add one more thing on the weight loss thing. A um, little bit of uh, personal experience. So I've... Uh, you can read my 10 Tips to Working Out article. I've been working about, out for about two years or so. Uh, finally got into the habit after much trying. And I've taken a lot of these strategies, and this is kind of the way I swing it. Um, I have a baseline of around 4,500 to 5,000 calories I need to eat per day. Otherwise, I drop weight. So, yeah, it seems to work well. In fact, last Lent, um, I was still eating around 2,500 calories, maybe 3,000. And over the 40 days, I dropped, um, I dropped 20 pounds. A friend of mine was only eating 500 calories, subsisting all of Lent, I kid you not, on two beers and a small amount of protein powder. And this guy lost 18 pounds in the same amount of time. So that just kind of goes to show you that, you know, even with 500 calories versus like 2,500 calories, the key is really that metabolic baseline. Um, that's what makes a difference and helps you, helps you lose weight. So yeah, personal experience we're coming from. All right, moving on. The next question is about why did God allow the priest uh, sex abuse scandal? Well, um, I'll say a couple things about this one. First, this leads into a broader problem of evil, and I do have a podcast about that, and uh, I think there are some very, very, very good answers, though it's always hard to speak about general or about specific answers. So I, I have no idea why God would do this at a specific level, but I do understand some certain principles. Um, and I, yes, 
Listen to the other podcast about all those principles and all of the inner workings of that stuff and email me if you have any further questions. But I'd like to point out that God is um, uh, omniscient, so he knows the suffering of all of these people that they've gone through. He's also completely just, and he's all-powerful. So knowing these three things, we know that God knows exactly how these people need to be compensated um, for the terrible evil that's been done to them, um, exactly how they need to be healed um, from from the terrible things which have happened to them, and out of justice, we can, we can trust that God will make this right uh, for, the, for these victims. Uh, he can do literally anything. And all of these things seem like the end of the world. And um, yeah, they're pretty darn close to it. But we do trust that all, our all-powerful God can, can heal. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I think also another important part is compensate. If indeed there was a, some type of good that came out of this, well, then the people who suffered bore the suffering and somebody else is reaping the, the good of this. I think that that's a problem of injustice and our all just God knows how to compensate those people for their work in the overall plan that God has. So who knows how he'll do that, but we do trust that he will. Um, Another thing is, being just, we know that God will deal with those priests that sinned in this, un- and bishops that uh, that sinned in this unbelievably awful way, that they won't escape justice. Um, you know, it, it sounds a little bit macabre, but a lot of saints throughout history say that one of the joys in heaven will be to witness the punishments and sufferings of hell. Um, oftentimes, we we kind of brush that one off, but... I'll be perfectly honest, I'm going to be a very happy man looking down and seeing those people suffer for those sins. Um, I think we all do like to see justice being done. It's not going to be vengeance for the sake of vengeance. It's not going to be vengeance for the sake of just of just cruel making people suffer. It's going to be the exacting of final justice by an all-powerful, all-loving God. Um, I can't wait to see those people burn in hell. Um, and the saints are with me on this one. I think as to why God lets the church be shamed in this way, because every Catholic has to bear the shame, um, and every priest really has to bear the shame. People think all priests are, you know, abusers and pedophiles, and that's absolutely not fair, especially when the data shows that um, they're actually less likely to be abusers than your average married man. And that's something we need to keep in mind, that the truth is this is um, a localized problem. Um, there's a split within, within Catholic priests. Some are religious priests, so they're tied to a, a, um, a mission. And then there's the diocesan priests who are tied to a location. So amongst religious priests, we have people like the Dominicans, the Benedictines, the Franciscans, and the Jesuits. Almost all of the abuse happened within the Jesuits. Their seminaries have been found to be um, like like predator training grounds where, where people have been, um, where professors and, and I guess administrators or something at the seminaries have been abusing the seminarians and grooming them. Um, they need to end that order again. Um, yeah, that's right. They shut this order down before and they need to do it again. It needs to be disbanded as corrupt to the core. I'm sure there's some good Jesuit priests, but... 
Sorry, guys. If if your hand defends the cut it off, we need to cut these people off. The other part is the diocese of, I believe it's Boston and somewhere in Pennsylvania. I think it might have been Philadelphia. So almost all the ones in the U.S. were just centered in those dioceses. The rest of the dioceses were fine. In fact, unbelievably safe. Um, so we, we need to root out exactly where the problem is. So although um, for the sake of presenting to the world, I do think we should show solidarity and say, you know what? The Catholic Church sinned. You're right. Because we all do bear some type of fault in not supporting um, our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're one body. If someone says, wow, that that hand did something wrong, the whole body should, you know, take that in solidarity and say, you know what, that's our hand. So th these people were part of the body of Christ who did this, so we all bear shame. However, internal to the body of Christ, we need to find exactly what the problem is, who the problem is, and destroy it. I mean, if you have an infection in your body, your body has processes to destroy that infection, to, um, to destroy the, the whatever flesh is dying as a result, to rip it apart into its most basic constituents, and then to, um, to either dispose of it as waste or once it's in basic parts, you transfer it to some place where it can be of use. So we need to be taking away people's churches. We need to be taking away people's funds. We need to be taking priests and, uh, you know, making them pay unbelievable penalties, um, including in some cases the death penalty. Um, we need to be absolutely relentless in tearing out this evil. Um, let's see. I think another reason why... God lets the church bear this type of humiliation is because it's true that our priests are failures. Um, most priests uh, can't preach at all. Um, I guess they're just too lazy or inept to put together a good homily. And when they do, it's like 10 minutes because they think that, you know, we can learn the Christian faith from 10 minutes. Um, a lot of liturgical abuses going on. Um, they don't get out of their community and do anything. They don't evangelize. They don't teach anybody anything, apparently, because half of the Catholics who attend Mass don't believe in the real presence of the Eucharist. Um, our priests are just absolute failures. Um, the young priests are better, but the old priests are awful. Almost like... <laughs> Like, the majority of them, I would say, and polls support this. Amongst older priests, um, oh, what was that poll that just came out? I'll see if I can find it and link it for you later. Um, they were asked, is abortion always wrong? Is homosexuality always wrong? Um, and older priests, the majority of them said, oh, no, not really. So that means most of our older priests are okay with abortion and homosexuality. That's a crisis. That's an absolute crisis. Even questions about the real presence in the Eucharist, um, those have disturbing responses. I don't think it's 50% disbelief, but it's a significant portion. That means we have millions of Catholics who have a priest who isn't actually really Catholic. Whew. So I think that God was, was taking away the honor that priests had and did not earn. And instead, giving them a dishonor that um, that they need to bear in in um, in uh, in recompense. So I think that is a good thing. Priests need to be ashamed um, because their their performance is shameful. And as for the new priests, they need to bear that shame that they did not earn, 
and use that to, um, to fuel their work in disproving those stereotypes, in earning back the respect of, of, of their communities, religious, and earning back the respect of the sector, secular world so that we can actually have a voice which matters. Because um, right now, yeah, it's completely discredited through people's sin. So I, th- I think it's an opportunity to stand up and rebuild. Also, it's a call to the laity. Um, you know, we can't trust our bishops to do anything right. We can't trust our priests to do anything right. Um, we can't trust our pope um, to do anything except for not declare something that is mis- that is not true from the seat of Peter. We can trust him to not mess that up, not because we trust him, but because we trust the Holy Spirit to never put us in a position where we have to choose between unity and truth and unity in the visible church. Um, but I think this is a season of the laity um, where we need to get out there and take on responsibilities that we haven't taken on before. Um, ones to evangelize, ones to teach, ones to care for the poor, ones to exercise and flex our political might. Um, I'm actually starting a, um, I might do a whole episode on this later, I probably will, but I'm involved in starting up a a small lobby. Um, If you're interested in getting involved, email me. Um, And uh, it's it's basically centered around education, where I want to make a change that the money that would be spent for one's child to a school district should instead be spent um, uh, by sending it directly to a parent's education savings account so that the parent can spend it for their child. So in my home state, that's about $12,500 every single year per student. Um, That's more than enough for every single Catholic parent to fund Catholic school for their kids. Um, that's more than enough for a parent to stay home and, and homeschool um, their children and finally have the great resources to do so. So that's an example of a change which we could, we could pack out religious schools um, if we took the funds which are being taken from us by force and spent on government monopolies and instead have, that fund, have those funds handed over to parents to have them spend it on behalf of their own children. So that's an example um, of a way that we can get politically involved. And I don't think that as Catholics, we've, we've done that. And I think we should. Um, if you look at the history of Christendom, you can't say that Catholicism wasn't involved in politics. Oh, oh, it was. Um, so we need to take that back. Um, need to restore Christendom. Um, wow, where was that going? Restoring Christendom. Where did we even start? Oh, yes. Failure of the priests, all that stuff. Um, that brings us to the question of um, punishment and revenge. Um, Deuteronomy, I think it's 25, you can reference back to my death penalty ar- ar- article I cited there, says that rape uh, deserves the death penalty. I agree, and I think a lot of these priests should have been put to death. Uh, I know that sounds extreme, but I don't think it is. Um, if, if I was Pope, may it to never be, um, I would have every priest and bishop um, become a dual citizen with Vatican City. And if I find that a priest raped a child, or anyone for that matter, I would recall them back to Vatican City. I would give them ample opportunity to repent for what they have done and to become right with God. And regardless of what they then do, they would 
receive the death penalty. A, uh, I don't know, a public hanging or something. Um, I'm sure there's lots of Catholics who disagree and somehow think that the, you know, mercy is um, when you don't apply justice. I disagree. I think the opposite of justice is injustice, not mercy. I think in that exact scenario, we could have mercy and justice combined. We could have the mercy on, on their soul, whereby they have to face the evil that they've done. And we can have the mercy that comes from, from, from Christ forgiving them of the internal debt of their sin. All the while, we can have the justice by having them pay for the, uh, for the evil that they've done with their own lives. So I don't see those in conflict. But again, listen to that past episode for more details. Can you imagine what the world would say? They would start out by saying, oh, these Catholics, they don't care about you know, these abuses and they're just covering these things up to, whoa, they're literally pulling their priests and bishops, going through a very orderly um, and careful examination proce- process, determining the truth and taking decisive action, showing that we do not tolerate this. We will put them to death to protect our children. That would have been an amazing, amazing witness. Um, but if, as usual, we failed. Um, I don't mean to bust on the Catholic Church uh, too much, um, I am a convert, so I, and I came into this whole thing with eyes open. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a very low view of every human feature of the Catholic Church, I think, is complete and abject failure. However, I'm in the church, and I will always be in the church, because it's not just a human institution. It's the one institution which is established by Christ, the God-man, protected by the Holy Spirit, um, allows for the confecting of the Eucharist, which is the body, blood, soul, and divinity of our Lord, um, can heal me of my sins with the very words of Christ and absolution, and binds me into the body of Christ and thereby connects me into the Trinitarian life of love through baptism. Um, Yeah, you're not going to screw that up. So, yes, my criticisms are of all of the people in this institution, in this God-given institution. Um, Which brings us to revenge. Uh, Email me if you want an episode on revenge, where we can read from St. Thomas Aquinas and we can examine some scriptural passages. If I get one email about revenge, I will do an episode at some point. I promise that. Um, And if you haven't heard it yet, then email me again and remind me, and then I will do it Um, I think it's misunderstood in the Christian tradition that we ought not ever take revenge. We should. Revenge can be a good thing. Now, the reason for revenge cannot be just some sycophantic desire to see somebody else suffer. No, that's wrong. That's cruelty. But instead, with... um, with uh, sobriety of mind, we can assess a situation whereby revenge is, is needed, where revenge, ironically, can be the most merciful thing that we can do for others. And then we should do it. Um, now, there are conditions. Some conditions may apply. You can't just take revenge because of somebody else's uh, being victimized by somebody in all cases unless you are tied to that situation. Um, for instance, um, I, I, I don't know, what would be a good example? If I find out that, that somebody was, um, was denied entrance to a store because of their race, that's a terrible thing. 
but it would be it'd be out of place for me to go down to that store and then take vengeance on the store owner because I am not involved in that at all. However, if I was um, if I was like their 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 spouse or their father, mother, brother, sister, I might go down there and say, "Hey, my relative did this, and you wronged them, and make them feel awful for what they've done." Um, which brings us to revenge is about causing people to recognize the truth. Revenge ought to be ordered towards um, repentance and ordered toward uh, towards truth. Uh, whereby somebody does an evil action, does not understand either that it was evil or the depth of the evil, and it's only through revenge that we open their eyes to this. And of course, understanding that what they did was evil and the depth of their evil is a prerequisite for repentance, and repentance is necessary to salvation. Therefore, revenge can be a salvific action. Um, so let me just say how this might work out in the pre-scandal. Um, somebody is abused as a child by a priest. Um, if they if they tell people, then maybe their father should um, go over, find the priest, and um, and uh, beat the tar out of him until his face looks like a like a pile of ground beef. I think that would be appropriate. Um, and also uh, alert all of the authorities and have all civil th- penalties and religious penalties come down upon that priest's head. Um, but I also think that that type of um, revenge directly by uh, the, the aggrieved parent would be entirely appropriate. If that child doesn't tell um, their parents or somebody else and instead goes on into adulthood with this as a secret, I see absolutely nothing wrong with them going back, finding the priest, explaining how that their sin impacted their life, and then causing them to understand it much further through physical force. That's totally fine. Um, and in this scenario, they also need to alert all civil and religious authorities so that the, the hammer can drop on them. But that type of revenge can be medicine for their soul. Um, it's owed in the order of justice that the victim may, uh, may get that type of justice upon the person who victimized them. Um, so it, it, it's an act of justice and mercy. Um, some provisions may apply. This does probably warrant another episode, but I'll leave you at that. Um, let's see. Let's see. I think we have more questions. I like these bonus episodes because I can, I can spend a lot more time on these. Uh, normally, I just give a, um, a silly answer and, and move right along. Oh, let's see. Let's see. Let's see. Well, how about this for an easy one? Um, what is better, an inner spring or a memory foam mattress? All right. As a man who has had a variety of both, I'm going to say that if you buy a memory foam mattress, it needs to be a very expensive one, probably like a Tempur-Pedic. They seem to be the only ones that actually hold their form for any appreciable amount of time. I... I just sink right into the darn things and just crush the foam right around my pelvis and it becomes shockingly uncomfortable um, in about three to four months. I've had two different kinds. One was a fancy brand name. One was not. The one that wasn't actually, um, that one actually held up better. Spring mattresses can be very old and still reasonably supportive and comfortable. 
Uh, so if, if, you, if you look at them both in the store, you're probably going to like the memory foam. However, a couple months down the line, the, the inner spring still holding strong and your memory foam is turned into a giant foam apricot, um, just hell-bent on destroying your back and ruining your morning. So that's my advice there. Um, yes, the, uh, the joys of the memory foam are fleeting, fleeting indeed. Okay, let's see, let's see. I bet you we have some more questions here. Let me look it up. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. So I, I told you at the beginning of the episode that I need more questions. We are hitting the bottom of the proverbial barrel. One of the uh, listeners has sent in a question and reminded me that it has not been answered. And that is, when I say that I have a casserole, am I referring to the dish or the food item which is made within the casserole? So he wants to know if a casserole means a dish or a dish meaning a like dish meaning like a food or a dish meaning a physical dish. All right. I shall finally answer this question. The answer is a casserole refers to the food. Because if I say I have a tuna casserole, the word tuna is meant to modify casserole in the sense that it is edible, in the sense that it is a food. So if I said tuna casserole and it was modifying the dish, then we would be led to believe that the casserole dish was in the shape of or was made from a tuna. And it is clearly not. Instead, the casserole, which is tunified, is the contents, the edible contents of the casserole. Um... I believe casserole is Latin. Oh, man, I'm going to butcher this one. And the etymology has something to do with, like, combination or... Oh, man. I did not look this one up. I'm, I'm spitballing here. But from memory, it has to do with the fact that many diverse things are all combined or mixed into one. This is not true of a dish as a dish, but instead... It is true of the contents of it, the food. So even if you didn't have what is normally known as a casserole dish, um, meaning that plate-type structure, if you mixed up a bunch of, of foods, say like vegetables, meats, carbohydrates, and whatnot, in anything, then that could qualify as a casserole. And if that qualifies as a casserole, then I suppose you could look upon its container as a casserole dish. All right. So there you go. You finally have your answer. Um, I don't know why I didn't want to answer that one. I will answer any questions that you send me. Um, but that one just, that one just didn't strike me as one I wanted to, to, uh, to parse about. But upon reflection, I suppose it was better than first anticipated. Um, Let's see. You know what? We're going to call it a day here. I hope you enjoyed listening to this bonus episode. Um, like, subscribe, hit buttons, hit five stars. And if you really feel awesome, put a review, but only a good one. Um, when Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever. Um, I don't know what buttons are at your disposal, but I just advise clicking all of them. As always, if you have friends, and if you like sharing, share it with your friends. And if you didn't like this episode, share it with your enemies. And I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.